Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. If you have your Bibles, we are going to be in uh, Psalm 126. Psalm 126. As you're turning there, uh, I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters down in Detroit at Redeemer. Uh, They are worshiping right now, and we uh, consider you guys to be uh, partners together in the gospel. Uh, We are encouraged by what the Lord's doing up here. Uh, And we try to pray for you on a consistent basis down at Redeemer, and we're thankful for your prayers as well. Uh, Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This is God's word, and he has written it to us for our good. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, just as we sang, we need you to speak to us. In this room, there are many different individuals, and within all of those different situations, we have very different needs. Some of us need encouragement. Some of us need to be reminded of what is true. Others of us need correction. All of us share in common that we need to hear from you. So Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would speak clearly to us, that you would speak in such a way that ultimately the preacher is moved out of the way and we leave here knowing that we heard from the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, before I get us started in our sermon text, I just want to say that I am going to need your help this morning. As it has already been mentioned, uh, I serve at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, um, and Presbyterian is Greek for not speaking to you while you preach. Um, so this morning, I need you, if you are encouraged in some way, uh, to speak back to me. My congregation refuses to do it, so I'm hoping that you will do it uh, this morning. Well, I want to begin our time together with a question, and the question is this. When is the last time you experienced joy and gladness? When you experienced true joy and gladness, where you were overcome with joy and gladness, where what you experienced felt like a dream, as if it almost was too good to be true, what caused that feeling? Do you ever replay that moment in your mind? I can imagine that even right now as I'm talking, memories are flooding into your head and hearts right now. Memories that you would do just about anything to go back to experience them just one more time. That if you could go back in time, we would do so in a heartbeat just to feel the feelings that we felt in that moment. 
I mention this because this is exactly what's taking place in our psalm this morning, in Psalm 126. Psalm 126 is simply an experience of joy and gladness where God had restored his people from some situation. But it's not just a past memory of joy and gladness. It's one of those memories that turns into a prayer for future joy and gladness. It's similar and closely related to Psalm 85. If you have in your Bibles, you can flip over to Psalm 85. And in Psalm 85, you'll see that God, that it speaks of God being favorable to his people, that he provides them with the, the forgiveness of sins and the reality of restoration. And the psalmist says, Lord, please, please do that again. Please visit his, the, the psalmist is asking that the Lord would visit his people and bring nothing short of revival. Psalm 126 is one of the 15 psalms of ascents. These are a collection of psalms that God's people would sing as they caravan to Jerusalem for the various feasts and festivities that would take place at the temple. That as God's people, as they marched up towards Jerusalem, Psalm 126 would, would have been one of the psalms that they would have sung on their way. Again, Psalm 126 is all about joy and gladness. It's all about rejoicing and restoration. It celebrates what God has done, and it anticipates of what he would do again in the future. And while this psalm is one of joy and gladness, one of unceasing praise, it is also a psalm of sorrow and lament. We take a look at verse 4. You'll see that the psalmist is asking the Lord to restore his people once again. The writer is asking the Lord to, to fill his people with, with joy and gladness. It seems like the joy and gladness has been lost. This psalm, I think, is particularly for those this morning who would say that their souls are dry and their joy is lost and they want nothing more for the Lord to visit them again. And beloved, my hope this morning and what I've been praying and asking of the Lord to do in our time this week is that he would visit us again and wash us afresh with the water that is found in his word that he would renew our hope and leave us here with mouths that are filled with laughter and tongues that shout for joy. And as we look at this psalm, we'll notice that the psalmist moves through three different time periods. He begins with the, the past in verses 1 to 3, and then he moves to the present in verse 4, and then he looks towards the future with confidence in verses 5 to 6. And this will serve as our outline this morning, the past the present, and the future. So first, let's discuss the past. Take a look at the first half of verse 1. The psalmist says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. The psalmist is reflecting on a memory of where God restored the fortunes of his people. Now, when we hear restore the fortunes of Zion, we might think the psalmist is speaking of perhaps financial blessing or material prosperity, but that's not what the, the psalmist is speaking about. The psalmist is speaking about something that is so much glorious than those things. Personally, 
I think it's correct, along with Old Testament scholars, that the psalmist is speaking of a particular event that took place in the life of God's people, and that is when the Lord brought his people out of Babylonian exile in 538 BC. You see, God had given his people a land, a place where they could call home, a place that they were to dwell, and in that place, God promised to dwell with his people, and he called his people to be faithful to him in the land. But God's people, as many of you know, were unfaithful to the Lord their God. They began to worship false gods. They oppressed others. They forgot about the Lord their God who delivered them with a mighty hand from Egypt. They broke God's covenant. In a real sense, they are guilty of spiritual adultery. This is how the prophet Isaiah describes the spiritual condition of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 21 to 23, the prophet says how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She who was full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. Her silver has become dross. Her best wine mixed with water. Your, her princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after a gift. They do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Brothers and sisters, this is the spiritual condition of Israel. They have abandoned their God. They who used to be oppressed now oppress others. And because of the sins of God's people, God removes them from the land, just like he did Adam and Eve in the garden. They were carried away by a foreign enemy and taken into exile, forced to live in a land that is not their own. And another psalm, Psalm 137, we get this snapshot of what life was like in exile for God's people. The psalmist writes, by the waters of Babylon... We sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing to us one of those songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Friends, just imagine, if you can, being forced into exile, to be pulled from your home and laid down in a place that you have never known. Think of the fear that would come with living in that enemy nation's territory of how you would be suspicious of every person who was around you because you were not sure how they were going to treat you. Imagine the longing that you would have in your heart for your homeland. And friends, this is the situation that Israel found herself in. But that situation after 70 years would be reversed as God's people would be called out of exile and to return back to the promised land because God is faithful to his promises, because he is faithful to his covenant, because he is faithful to his people, because he is gracious to them. He does not leave them in exile, but he brings them back home. And as the people of God enter back into Jerusalem, they begin to have a homecoming that is unlike any other homecoming. The captives are now set free. 
Their fortunes have been restored. The the psalmist tells us in the second half of verse 1 that all of this felt like a dream. They're saying to one another, am I I asleep? Am Am I dreaming? Is this something that is really happening right now? Am I going to end up back in Babylon? It's as if they looked at each other and said, pinch me because I'm dreaming because there is no way this can be real. And then in the second half of verse 2, the psalmist gives us the sounds of restoration. He says that God's people, that their mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Friends, God's people are no longer weeping. Their countenance is no longer gloomy. No, they are responding to this glorious event with laughter and shouts of joy. Simply put, they are overcome with joy and gladness. On January 1st, President Abraham Lincoln signed what is known as the Emancipation Proclamation. The night before it was signed, African Americans who were able to gather, join together, particularly in churches, as they anticipated the news of what was going to take place. This is where, if you are connected with any uh, African-American church tradition, this is where watch night services come from. And when the news reached these churches that Lincoln effectively signed their freedom into law, prayers of praise and songs of joy filled the air as people fell to their knees and gave thanks and praise to God with their hands outstretched to heaven, praising God for his deliverance. Frederick Douglass in his biography describes the scene as wild and grand. He says that joy and gladness exhausted all other forms of expression from shouts of praise to joy that was mixed with tears. And beloved, this is exactly what the Israelites were experiencing as they entered back into the land of promise. They sang and they worshiped. In Ezra chapter 3, we read that they give praise to God because he is faithful to his covenant with Israel. Their worship was so loud and so jubilant that the nations began to take notice. You see, such an act of restoration, such an act of deliverance produces joy and gladness. That when God restores his people, he floods their hearts with joy and gladness. And notice that this is a joy and gladness that can be audibly heard. Friends, this teaches us something about the nature of our worship. Our worship is, yes, to be reverent. It is to be, in some sense, somber because we are entering into the presence of a holy and righteous God. But at the same time, Our worship of God should be marked by a palatable joy, that our worship should be exuberant. It should be marked by wholehearted praise. We want to glorify God and enjoy him as we worship him. Friends, worship is not simply just a duty. It is also the delight of a Christian's heart. And notice as God's people rejoice in God for his work of restoration the nation surrounding Israel began to take notice. According to the second half of verse 2, the nation say, the Lord has done great things for them. It is as Israel is worshiping her God. 
as she rejoices in the great things that God has done, as, is as if they are shouting with praise that the nations that surround them see what's going on, and they can't help but say that Israel's God has been good to his people. Brothers and sisters, when you and I gather together for worship, that when we come into the presence of our great God and King, that when we give him thanks and praise, according to verse 3, that, that he has done great things for us, and because of this, we are glad, there is something that is naturally evangelistic about this. And one of the primary ways that we as God's people bear witness to the saving grace in our lives is by gathering with the saints for worship and praising God for what he has done for them. And friends, the same God who has restored the fortunes of Israel has also restored our fortunes in an even greater way in the Lord Jesus Christ, hasn't he? It is in Christ that you and I find that our situation has completely changed because we, like Israel, rebelled against the Lord our God. We broke his law. We ignored his covenants. We, we ignored his commandments. And because, all, because of this, all of us were in spiritual exile, separated from God and only deserving of his wrath and displeasure. But beloved, God is rich in mercy. He is abundant in steadfast love. He is filled with love and grace, and he did not leave us in sin's exile. But he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who bore our sins in his body on the cross, taking the penalty of our lawbreaking upon himself, enduring exile so that you and I might receive restoration. Friends, in Christ, you and I have been brought home. This is the Apostle Paul's point in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, those who were once far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. Children of wrath have now become children of God. Exiles have now been restored. And friends, this is more than enough reason to give God shouts of praise, isn't it? That this is enough to sustain our praise for 10,000s of years. That friends, if you are looking for motivation to have joy poured back into your heart, it comes to you in the fact that God has raised you from the dead and re reconciled himself to you. Friends, the psalmist recalls this past event in the life of Israel because he knows that the same God who brought restoration in the past is also able to do it in the presence. And that moves us to our second time period, which is the presence. Up until this point, as you might have already noticed, the psalmist is speaking solely in past tense. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with gladness. The Lord has done great things for us. But now in verse 4, the psalmist moves to a different tense and he begins to speak in the present and he offers what appears to be a prayer. Take a look at his prayer in verse four. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams in the Negev. We're not really sure the situation that is taking place, but it's clear that God's people are in need of restoration 
again. There's a crisis of some kind. It could be that God's people, that even though they're now brought into the land, they are under still enemy occupancy, and sometimes those enemies would still treat God's people poorly. The agricultural metaphor in verses 5 to 6 could suggest that there is perhaps a, a famine in the land, but at the end of the day, we don't know the situation that is taking place. But whatever the situation is, the psalmist is declaring that God's people are lacking the joy and gladness that they had once experienced. In the words of the great philosopher and theologian B.B. King, the thrill is gone. In the second half of the prayer, he mentions the streams in the Negev. Negev simply means dry land or perhaps parched land. It's this dry land that is just south of Judah that that borders the wilderness that leads to Mount Sinai. And in this land, there are dry riverbeds. You can walk across them because they're so dry and you won't sink in the mud because there is no water to create mud. And as you look around in the Negev, you see that all of the ground is, is brittle and hard and it's cracking. Ultimately, it's dry as a bone. But there are rare occasions that the streams of the Negev, where one time it will rain and the water will come rushing in and it will overflow. And this desert that is dry and cracked turns into an oasis of life and hope. Do you see the vivid picture that the psalmist is painting for us, brothers and sisters? It's as if he's saying, Lord, we, your people, are as dry as the Negev, and we need you to come and visit us once again and bring water so that we might turn from those who are dying back to life. It's a plea that God would restore his people and cause them to flourish once again. I think if you have been a Christian for any period of time, you can empathize with what the psalmist and God's people are experiencing. You remember those moments of joy where the Lord's grace just flooded your life and all that you known was joy and gladness, where prayer and reading the scriptures were easy, when you were running to the doors of the church to be there for worship, or when you just couldn't stop talking about Jesus, like a lover who finds it impossible to stop talking about their beloved. But for some reason, that joy began to slowly fade away, whether it be through the trials of life, the changing seasons, or a number of different reasons, it feels as if your soul is dry as the Negev, that it's parched, that it's cracked, that it's, that it's brittle, and you long for the days of the joy that now feels like a fading and distant memory. One hymn writer puts it in this way, where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his word? Beloved, what do you do when you find yourself in the same space as our psalmist? When you are in a, let's call it, spiritual drought, 
where you feel joyless, where it feels like your, your prayers are only ever hitting the ceiling and you're not sure if God is even listening to you anymore. Where does the Christian go when they feel like their faith and their religion is more like a chore instead of a delight? I think the psalmist models for us and calls us to do two things in those seasons. The first is he calls us in his own example to pray to the Lord. And then secondly, he calls us to gather with the saints for worship. So first, you pray. Notice that the psalmist prays to the Lord. As he looks at his own heart, as he looks at Israel's situation, he does not look within himself. He reaches out to the Lord and he asks the Lord to bring refreshment and restoration to his people. The psalmist knows that the God who restored Israel in the past is also more than able and more than willing to do it in the present. See, the psalmist doesn't, isn't content with yesterday's joy. He wants a joy for today. When you find yourself in a spiritual drought, in a joyless season, beloved, turn to the Lord in prayer. Ask him to restore to you the joy of your salvation. Wrestle with him in prayer until he blesses you. Friends, sometimes we have not because we ask not. One practical way to do this is to pray the Psalms. Pray Psalms like Psalm 42. Why are you so cast down, my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation. Or perhaps Psalms like Psalm 63. Oh God, where are you, my God? I earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I looked upon you in your sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. Beloved, turn to the Lord and draw near to him in prayer in seasons of doubt because he promises to also draw near to you. And as you do this, over time, he will fill your mouth with laughter and renew your joy and give you shouts of praise. But not only do we pray in seasons of spiritual drought, we also gather with the saints for worship. Remember, this whole psalm is written in the the context of God's people worshiping together as they head to Jerusalem. And you have to imagine that there are some Israelites That as they journey together, as they are hearing this song sung, that that they feel what the psalmist is feeling in the depths of their soul. And as they journeyed up this mountain, as they saw Jerusalem, as they heard God's people sing, you have to believe that God met them there and refreshed their souls. Beloved, when you're in a spiritual drought, the best place you can be is in the house of God with the people of God singing praises to God. It is there, it is here that in these spaces, just like what we're doing now, where God comes to us and he ministers us to his word and through the various elements of this service. It is in these moments that God brings refreshment to our dry and weary souls. He nourishes our souls with the water of his word. 
He provides sustenance as we come to the Lord's table and as we feast together on all of the promises that belong to us in Jesus Christ. He encourages our souls as we hear God's people sing loudly with songs of joy and and, and gladness. He, He heals us and applies the healing balm of the gospel as we confess our sins to one another. Beloved, there have been several times, even as a pastor, and I'm sure your pastors can attest to this as well, where I have limped into the sanctuary at Redeemer, where I have been exhausted and discouraged and fearful with almost no joy in my heart. But at some point in the service, the Lord met me with his word. He fed me at his table with the Lord's Supper. He used the singing of God's people. He used even the conversations as we hung out in the hallway. He used all of these means to fill my mouth with laughter once again. That he uses all of these very ordinary elements to to refresh our souls. And beloved, I know that I am not alone in that in this room. That all of us have experienced what it's like for the Lord to, to bring restoration to us when we are exhausted. And friends... The worst thing you can do in seasons of spiritual drought is to forsake gathering with God's people. That when you feel uncertain about what you believe, when, when joy feels like a distant memory, the worst thing you can do is to stop coming to church on Sunday morning. Because this is here where God refreshes you and reminds you of what it is true. This also means that if you find yourself here this morning and you are in a season of spiritual drought, then this is the best place in the world for you to be. And I am so glad that you are here. The psalmist looks in the past. He prays in the present. And then lastly, he looks to the future with confidence. And this brings us to our third and final points, the future. In verses five to six, the psalmist changes metaphors. He goes from uh, using dry land to water to now speaking in more of a agricultural metaphor. He uses the illustration or the picture of a farmer. Take a look at verses five to six. <coughs> Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. This image would have been extremely familiar to the Israelites who lived in a agrarian society. It's this picture of ordinary work. If you've ever done any farming, then you know that farming is an act of faith, that you plow the ground, you do all you think, all the things that you can do to get the land ready, and you sow seeds, and the rest you do is you wait and pray and hope for the best. You know that so much of farming is out of your hands. Too little rain, too much rain, too much sunshine for too long of a period of time, not enough sunshine, raining at the wrong time. All a farmer can do is work and work and work and ask the Lord to bring the harvest. And what we find is that the psalmist is using, in using this metaphor, is making a statement of trust. He's saying that we sow now in tears, but one day we will reap with joy. Why is the farmer in this picture, why is he 
sowing with tears? Well, I think it's because sowing is extremely hard work. It's one in which you're unsure of the results. It's, it's filled with opposition and frustration and, and hardship. And even though all of this is the case, the psalmist is confident in the future. That all he can see and do now is sow seeds with tears in his eyes, but he knows that his sorrow will soon give way to joy. That joy will follow sorrow just as day follows night. This is similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. But friends, what does this mean for us? This means that for the Christian, your best days are only ahead of you. That eternal joy awaits you. That right now you might be grinding faithfully, seeking to be faithful to your God and to the the cause of his kingdom, pouring yourself out for the cause of Christ, going faithfully about your duties, putting your sin to death. And beloved, you would say that it is hard. It's burdensome. It's exhausting. And you often wonder if it's worth it. And our psalmist comes around you and he throws his arm over your shoulder and he says, yes, sister, yes, brother, it's more than worth it because soon you will reap an eternal harvest of joy. That the Christian life is a lot like the life of a farmer. We faithfully and patiently sow seeds that we are unsure will ever bear fruit, investing in things that we might not see, but we do it in faith because we know that a harvest of joy will soon follow. One of Jesus's best known parables is the parable of the sower. And in that parable, uh, Jesus tells us that, that the sower, that the one who sows seed stands for the, the spreading of the word of God. It's this communicating the truths of the gospel to those who have not heard the gospel. And as many of you know, this is quite hard work. It's frustrating. It's agonizing. And oftentimes you are unsure if any of your efforts are making, are making any waves. Last week, uh, a number of the pastors, or at least the, the Presbyterian ministers in uh, Detroit got together for a yearly retreat And we do this every year just to simply encourage one another in the Lord. And all of us just began to share stories, but particularly the ones who were sharing stories that caught my attention were the church planters. And the church planters were just expressing how difficult it is to plant churches in our current context. That as they continue to sow seed, as they share the gospel, and as they are rejected again and again, it feels exhausting. They sow with tears in their eyes. But all of them agree that all of it is worth it when someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. When a church is planted, when the gospel goes forward, all of it is good because they have begun to reap a harvest of joy. And friends, that is true of church planting, but it is even more true as we think about the glory that awaits us as God's people. But every tear that we shed on this side of eternity as we seek to be faithful to the Lord our God, every loss that we have taken, every time we have sought to share the message of the gospel only to be rejected, all of it's worth it 
because it will pale in comparison with the joy that will be revealed to us at the day of Christ Jesus. That as surely as God raised his son from the dead is so sure that you and I will reap a harvest of joy. So beloved, don't stop sowing. Don't stop being faithful. Don't stop putting one foot in front of the other. Don't stop doing what you are doing. Don't stop, don't grow weary in well-doing because soon you will reap a harvest of joy. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, first we give you thanks and praise because you have restored our fortunes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we were those who were outside of your kingdom, who were outside of your land of promise, but by grace and through the power of your spirit, you picked us up and put us on your shoulders and brought us home. So we give you thanks and praise for that. But Lord, we also confess that at times we feel joyless. We feel exhausted from sowing seed, unsure if they will bear fruit. And we pray that by your power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring refreshment to us. I pray particularly for my brothers and sisters in this congregation as they continue to be faithful to you in the years to come. Lord, allow them to see and reap a joyful harvest to see men and women and boys and girls come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more than that, we look forward to the day where you will come again and make all things new. We ask that you would come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.